Hello and welcome back to Bites with History. Bites with History? <laughs> That's not the name. Hello and welcome back to Bites of History with Irene Walton. I am your host, Irene Walton, and today we are finishing out the Disney series with part three, Club 33. Have you ever wondered how it made it to your table? Have you ever wondered how it made it to your shelf? If you love food, then this is the show for you. Bites of History with Irene. So I mentioned in last week's episode that maybe we should end our series of the Disneyland foods and food-like things with Club 33, and a lot of y'all were super interested in that. So here we are. I have learned so much more than I thought I was going to, and I cannot wait to share it with you guys. Again, if you didn't grow up spending your weekends watching old Disney history documentaries, that just means that you probably had a life and a boyfriend before I did. But I have heard some some smatterings, some rumblings of Club 33 in the past. I think it's become a much more well-known fact that it exists now, but... I don't think that was like a super common piece of Disney knowledge until maybe like 10, 15 ish years ago, maybe when social media kind of became more popular. So for anybody who doesn't know, Club 33 is a members only VIP exclusive fine dining club and lounge that is located in New Orleans Square of Disneyland. It is admission based and it costs an annual fee to be a part of. And as of late, it is kind of only invitation based, but we're going to get into the wait list and the admission fees and everything towards the end of this episode. We are going to be talking about the history of Club 33, where it came from, where it got its name, because there is quite a bit of lore around that as well, and what the gag is. What's the tea? Why are people so interested? How much is it? What's the wait list like? Is it worth it? We're going to get into all of that. So let's start out with the history. That's one of my favorite parts. Like a lot of things with this podcast, we are learning that this harkens back to a World's Fair as well. It's not the same one that Hershey was at. It's not the, you know, the 1800s one, but it is the 1964 World's Fair that Disney first gets his idea for Club 33. Now, uh, we are going to be talking about the World's Fair. I do want to make a quick correction. In my first episode, I say that um, Pepsi sponsored the World's Fair attraction in 1981 in that World's Fair. That was incorrect. Totally my mistake. I meant this 1964 World's Fair. Thank you for being patient with that correction. I'm sure so many of you were just screaming at me through your podcasting server. Let's dive in to what the World's Fair meant for Disney. So at the time that the 1964 World's Fair was happening in New York, Walter Elias Disney had his creative contracting company going on out here in California called WED. Walter Elias Disney, Imagineering. This was where they were creating rides for the attractions and they were contemplating new things and doing a lot of Disney stuff. And that's where we get our Imagineers even today. But this company also was did things for other people, for other companies. And the history on this was a little tricky. Like four of the different places that I was researching. Oh, I didn't do this. The, um, the, the sources. Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. 
Thank you so much to my sources, wikipedia.org, disneylandclub33.com, um, wdwmagazine.com, disneydose.com, and I also watched a video on the YouTube Yesterworld channel called The Origins of Club 33. Thank you guys so much for being our sources. We couldn't do this podcast without you. And also thank you to my sweet and loving patrons. I couldn't do this podcast without you. If you guys would like to become a patron, you can check it out right there for $2, and we have the best time in there, so make sure you give that a click. But for now, let's keep on going. Before the 1964 World's Fair happened, a lot of these companies were looking to create attractions that could be at the World's Fair and make a splash and be important and be special and be memorable. And the thing that I was getting confused was if it was Walt Disney himself who went up to these companies like GE and Ford and Pepsi and was like, hey, we can make these things that will make quite the splash for you or if it was the companies that went to Disney. Those lines were kind of blurred. I kept hearing one way or the other like three or four different times. So the the knowledge to get from that is that Walt Disney had his creative imagineering contracting company and there were companies that needed what he was doing. Whoever found the other one is up in the air. But it ended up that Walt created four different major attractions for four different major companies that were going to be appearing at the New York World's Fair in 1964. Upon the creation of some of these attractions, Walt was like, yo, this is kind of better than just being at the World's Fair. Like, can we get this back to the park? And we'll see that a couple of these attractions did become fixtures in Disneyland and Disney parks. However, a couple didn't. So for the four attractions that he helped create for four major companies... One of them was for Ford, which they created, uh, they collaborated together to create Ford's Magic Skyway, which was the chronological history of the world that you would travel and see in a Ford vehicle. That one did not become like a fixture in a Disneyland, but it was very popular at the World's Fair. The state of Illinois sponsored a ride through the WED Imagineering Company, and it was called Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln. There's still an ode to this in the Hall of Presidents at Disneyland on Main Street. So that's kind of stuck around since 1964, which is so cool. So It's a Small World happened because Pepsi was going to sponsor a ride in collaboration with UNICEF through the WED Imagineering Company. And this was like, since it was UNICEF, it was sort of like an homage to all the children of the world. So that's where we get It's a Small World. And that is obviously still a ride, still a favorite of mine for sure. And then we get GE's Progress Land, which would become the carousel of progress that was a ride at Disney. However, it did close after about 10 years of being there. So it closed in like the mid 70s. But that was still a fixture from the World's Fair that got transferred back to Disneyland Park. Now, as these attractions were going on at the World's Fair, Disney would go and check on it. And it was Disney. So obviously he was at the World's Fair too. And with like the General Electric company, he would go and check on the ride and talk to the people and they would say, oh, here, why don't you come into the VIP lounge where we can like have a more quiet place to talk, have a drink, talk shop, whatever. And Disney was like, I will. I will, in fact, go into that lounge. Thank you so much for the invitation. He noticed that pretty much all of these larger companies, Ford had one. There were a lot of VIP lounges that it was, it was just a nice place, a little bit of respite from the chaos of the World's Fair and just the craziness of everything that was going on. And Disney was like, this is interesting. He was like, 
I got to get one of these. I got to get myself one of these VIP lounges, baby. So he was talking to the people at GE who were doing the Progress Land or what would become the Carousel of Progress. And they were like, hey, you should have one of these lounges in Disneyland. And Walt was like, that's literally so crazy. Tell me more about it. Because he was already super interested in the idea anyway. And they were like, we will sponsor this ride. Um, and if you put the VIP lounge in this ride, we'll let you keep the ride at Disneyland, whatever. And he was like, love that, love that, love that. QQ, quick question. I don't want to do it in this actual ride itself, like in the carousel. We are developing a new area in the park called New Orleans Square that I think the VIP lounge would be perfect for. It'd be even quieter and it would be even more secluded from the park itself. And GE was like, I literally love that. Let's make it happen. So after the World's Fair closed, Disney was able to secure some of these attractions that he and his uh, Imagineering team had worked so hard on to be at the park, which was very beneficial for both parties. Like, you know, Pepsi and UNICEF were now going to be seen by millions more people for decades longer to come, even though they didn't know that, but we do now. And... Disney had a whole new attraction that was already built, paid for, and finished that he could just put into the park. So these sponsors of the park were really, really important, just like we had talked about in the first episode. They were the reason he kind of got to go as crazy Walt Disney perfect as he did because he had the sponsor money. So with the World's Fair being in 1964 and then ending with the idea that Club 33 was going to get built, although they didn't know that was going to be the name yet. We'll get to that in a second. Disney was super excited. They're building New Orleans Square. They're getting these new attractions. The sponsors are happy. Disney's happy. This is actually one of the last major things that Disney can oversee in person before he passes away in 1966. And then Club 33 opens in 1967 as the new exclusive, amazing, secluded VIP lounge. This is the first and only place you can get alcohol in Disneyland. It's also the only place that like is, you know, outside of the Disney chaos and craziness, just like at the World's Fair when you were able to kind of pop into your own little secluded... How many times am I going to say secluded? Oh my goodness. When you're able to pop into your own little, like, secret place. However, this was not the first time Disney toyed around with the idea of alcohol. So before we get to the name of how we got Club 33, let's talk about Holiday Land. So Disney was never a fan of alcohol in the parks. He knew that this was like a magical, family-friendly place, and he just thought that alcohol was going to kind of take some of the wholesome nature out of this establishment that he had worked really hard on. However, he was a businessman after all, and he knew that there was quite the amount of capital uh, to be had in alcohol. So a couple of years after the park opened in 1957, he created a little area. Well, not little, but he created an area out right outside of Disneyland, like literally adjoining, but technically outside of the park called Holiday Land, which was basically like a really glorified park party. There were games like hopping in the sack game. Is that, does that have a name? I cannot remember, but you put a sack on and you hop, you know, there's slides and there's benches and all this stuff. And there was all you can drink beer that you could purchase, which a lot of people purchased. Um, a lot of companies would buy this out for company parties. You could rent out certain areas for birthday parties. But this was the only place that you could get alcohol even around Disneyland. And 
That quickly uh, got retired only four years later after there were too many instances of very inebriated guests coming into the park through the special holiday land entrance. Disney was like, this is exactly what I didn't want. It's too chaotic there because they also it was like they had these times that they could enter the park. So you had your company party that all 400 people were at. And then at 7 p.m. you were allowed to go into the park. So it was 400 new people all pretty much drunk at the park all of a sudden. So it was just too much. Disney was like, let's shut this down after four years. And that was the last we saw of Holiday Land. <laughs> now let's get into the name of Club 33. There are a couple of theories and there's one official statement. The official statement from the Disney Corporation is that Club 33 lives on 33 Royal Street. So there we have the name. That's boring and I don't like it. So I obviously did my own little a little research and was looking for what the other names could possibly be, where this name could possibly be from. And I found something from an unofficial but relatively credible source, Mr. Robert Craig. Mr. Roger Craig, <laughs> Mr. Roger Craig, who was the assistant manager when Club 33 opened and then eventually became the manager. He said that since the creation of Club 33 was happening basically because Disney realized the importance of having a place to host guests, host VIP, invited friends, host dignitaries and celebrities and all this stuff, kind of a place away from the chaos. Since the sponsors were such a big part of that, it sort of became a thing that this was like for the sponsors of the park. And at the time, there were 33 sponsors. We're talking Goodyear. We're talking General Electric. We're talking Spice Island. We're talking Sunkist. So there were a lot of sponsors that were there helping the park get established. And at the time of Club 33's creation, there were 33 sponsors. So that is one of the other theories of how we get our name, Club 33, which is... I think very cool and interesting, I, which I think like if I was Disney Corp, I'd be like, there's so many reasons for the name. But they're like, yeah, it's on 33 Street. Hey, it's on 33 Royal. That's where we get it. Um, that's actually how they said it. That's a direct quote. This is not a direct quote from the Disney company. There is also some speculation that it is an ode to the 33rd degree of Freemasonry. Now, let me tell you what it says Freemasonry is, if you didn't know, because I sure didn't. So I looked it up on Wikipedia and Wikipedia describes it as fraternal organizations that trace their origins to the local guilds of stonemasons that from the end of the 13th century regulated the qualifications of stonemasons and their interactions with authorities and clients. Now, I didn't really understand what that meant. And my brother always understands what this kind of stuff is. He's very smart with these like weird little esoteric places and things and da da So Eddie Walton says, it seems to be a bunch of well-off white guys who network, which is something I understood a lot more and makes much more sense to me. <laughs> so apparently Walt was a part of this 33rd degree of Freemasons, which were people who have made a substantial contribution to society, which would definitely fit the description. It makes sense that Disney would be a part of it. And the 33rd degree, Club 33, VIP, all makes sense. It all rhymes even. So, you know, that's a possibility. And something that I could imagine being a bit of a stretch for the name, but I also think 
makes some sense too, is that um, the prohibition in the United States ended in 1933. So it might just be a little like nod to, hey, this is the first place alcohol is allowed in the park. And it's sort of like the end of Disneyland's prohibition, hearkening back to 1933's ending of prohibition. Maybe that. We don't see an alcoholic drink available to the public in the park until 2019 when Star Wars Land opens. So now let's get to the nitty gritty. What is the gag? What's the tea? Why do people want to be a part of Club 33 so bad? What is offered? How much is it? What's the wait list? How do you get in? These are all great questions, but one at a time. Um, <laughs> so it is a written application that you like, you know, send in by the mail, which I do love the romance of. Um, and there is a hefty, 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 hefty wait list. So if you have mailed in your application and you're waiting to see where you are on the wait list, it is advised that you don't call, apparently, because it's sort of, <laughs> I've, apparently, I've never done that and they weren't mean to me. No, I have no idea. But it is advised that you don't call to check in because apparently last checked, last it was like sort of heard, the wait list was about 14 years long. Um, and it has been closed for quite some time. That doesn't mean that people don't get invited in. That doesn't mean that a member can't recommend you, but it is, you know, it's, it's a very, very exclusive club. There is an initiation fee, which apparently the last people heard, this is, here's the thing. If you guys have noticed, it's all very like up in the air, kind of smoky, misty. No one's totally sure about anything. And that's definitely the point. It's meant to be like an exclusive secret club. And the only reason we all know about it is because it's just been talked about a little more and more in the media. But the concrete facts of it are not really set in stone anywhere. You can't be totally sure. I don't know if the wait list is, is exactly 14 years, but the last time somebody heard from a credible source, it was, you know? And it's the same thing with the initiation fee. Apparently, the initiation fee is about $50,000. And that's just when you start. And then it is a $15,000 um, annual fee. So once you're in, that's what you're paying every year. Now, what do you even get if you are a member of Club 33? So you get annual passes to all of the parks. You can go to the parks whenever. You get invitations for guests. You get front row seating to all of the Disney entertainment. And you get access to the actual lounges. So the Club 33 lounge and fine dining establishment you can go, you can make reservations, you can eat there. Now, I was obviously incredibly interested in what kind of food it was because one time my family took us on a Disney cruise and it was really fun and magical. And we went to the Bahamas and it was amazing. I got the most sunburn I've ever gotten in my whole entire life. But, you know, we would go to these really nice, beautiful dinners and it was sort of like um, Mickey's macaroni. And it was like, sort of Disney themed, but like really good food, but like a nod to Disney. And it seems like at Club 33, it's very much just like lamb medallions with uh, pomme frites. Like it, it's not like Goofy's garlicky chicken, you know, like it's not like very Disney themed in there. But apparently inside there are a lot of cool like Disney antiques and Disney memorabilia and like the the table for Mary Poppins is the table you eat on and stuff like that. So it is like old, cool Disney memorabilia, but it's not like Disney themed 
apps. You know what I mean? They have a highly awarded head chef, Andrew Sutton, and then they have guest chefs who come in, like Gloria Tay came in and was the chef de cuisine for a little while. And it, I mean, I would love to go. I would love to be invited and eat there. So if anybody here's a Club 33 member and they want a buddy, you let me know. And I think it's really cool. I loved learning about this crazy, like, esoteric club that Disney wanted to invite secret fancy members into. I thought it was really, really interesting. And I learned so much. Did you guys learn anything in today's episode about Club 33? Let me know in the comments down below. And come and join me next week when we talk about some other cool piece of food history that I'm not telling you about yet because I haven't picked it. Um, please make sure you check out my Patreon for only $2 a month. You can join there and help produce this little podcast that we do. Um, and if you guys wouldn't mind subscribing down below, leaving a comment, smashing that like button, (laughs) um, that helps me out a lot. That lets me know that you're loving this and that I should keep doing it. All right, you guys. So thank you very much for listening. I will see you on Friday for a new foodish video. And then I will see you next Tuesday for our next Bites of History. I hope you have a wonderful day and some very happy holidays. I love you. Goodbye. (laughs) 